You are listening to an M Pavilion podcast. And it is now also my great pleasure to welcome um, Nikki Henningham here. Nikki is a researcher with the um, the E Scholarship Research Centre at the University of Melbourne, and she, while there, she spends a lot of her time working on the Australian Women's um, Register and in that capacity doing a lot of oral history work. And it's her work as an oral historian that she's been engaged in a project called the Invisible Farmer Project. Nikki, are you going to talk a bit about the Invisible Farmer Project? Or do you... I'll, I'll give a little bit of background. Okay. Yes. okay. So, the, so I'll just hand you over then. <laughs> I really don't, this is a first for us. We've not been down here to the... Um, to the M Pavilion. Uh, the M Pavilion gets dismantled every year and then reset set up in another place and a different kind of M Pavilion is then um, rebuilt here on this site. So um, we'll give a more f sort of uh, detailed introduction to uh, the Placing Gender Workshop once we're at La, um, La Trobe's campus in Collins Street, but I'm really delighted that we can kick off here um, with Nikki. Thanks. Thanks, Katie. And thanks, everyone. Do you mind if I sit down to start with? And I might stand up or whatever. But um, I'm delighted to be here. And I'd like just to, to acknowledge the traditional custodians of this land. Um, it might interest you to know that Yulat at Wheelam means river, people of the river camp. And it's connected with the coastal land at the head of Port Phillip Bay. So way back there. Um, extending to the Werribee River um, and through to Mordialloc. It's a huge area. Um, and these people are part of the Boon Wurrung, one of the five major language groups of the Greater Kulin Nation. And so I'd like to pay my respects to their land, their ancestors and their elders, past, present and to the future. Now this pavilion, these parklands, rest on land where people have been in a conversation with their environment for thousands of years. For countless generations, it was a traditional and highly significant camping and meeting place for the local custodians. These people had and still have an intimate relationship and deep connection with the land. How its seasons worked, and having lived in Melbourne pretty much all my life, I could use some help with this. Um, they knew how its plants grew and its animals behaved. Um, after thousands of years of Aboriginal interaction, the country still yielded a leisured and healthy lifestyle for the clans. Wellness was a way of life, not a commercial opportunity. Theirs was an observant, effective and economic strategy for sustaining the, their needs and their environment. Skills were learned by observation, imitation, real life practice and from oral tradition. The daily needs and the needs of future generations were synonymous. They knew about environmental sustainability. Animals and tubers were the primary foodstuffs of the people. By the Yarra River, they caught eels um, in weirs of stone and woven funnels. Mussels, fish and tortoise were harvested. Ducks were caught using returning boomerangs. Kangaroo and emu were stalked and hunted. Many plants and roots were eaten, with the yam daisy, murnong, being the most important of these. Now, firing the country in patches kept the denser vegetation from shading out the important lilies and the murnong. It promoted new tender grass for grazing kangaroos. Wouldn't it be great to see some grazing kangaroos around here? 
Now, women worked these patches of land with their digging sticks as they dug for Murnong, thinning out the clumps, aerating the soil and replacing root pieces, much like gardeners do with irises and daffodils. There were native fruits, fibres that were made into clothing and implements, like baskets for catching the eels and so forth. Aboriginal women, like women throughout time, dedicated much of their time to family and domestic responsibilities, in particular collecting and gathering food as well as medicines. They possessed detailed knowledge of their environment. They were educators, teaching their children how to locate, gather, prepare food, and which foods to avoid for, due to poisons or cultural associations. The food collected by women, such as seeds, fruits, roots, small game, shellfish, provided a regular diet for Aboriginal families on a daily basis. This was an amazingly productive location and women were actively involved in land management. So I offer you all this information before I make a statement of regret about the Invisible Farmer project. Not enough was done early enough in the project planning to establish links with contemporary Indigenous women who might be able to answer the 60,000-year-old question of what were the first Australians doing that enabled the land to be continually renewed and productive. I'm not, in, I'm not saying this in order to attribute blame to the project team. It's directed more at funding schemes and guidelines we work with that don't enable us to take a long durée approach to building relationships in, um, uh, in our sort of app grant applications. So I don't want to bog us down in this this morning, but I guess I just wanted to warn you that this is a very settler-oriented project and to that extent, I know, settler-oriented presentation. And within that context, the focus, or our focus on work thus far in the Invisible Farmer project has been on collecting data that helps us understand the development of the Australian Rural Women's Movement, which was an activist movement during, in the 70s and 80s, during which farm women around the country united to say they were as mad as hell and they weren't going to take it anymore. The politics of this movement were and remain complicated and in my experience through the project interview program, most women are still working those politics out. In a context of Me Too moments and sexual harassment scandals that have loudly resonated with many women on the land, the relationship between personal and parliamentary politics has been the most important focus for many women I've interviewed. Having said that, regardless of the narrative and what they thought or think they were fighting for, a different way of managing the land for sustainable futures is always part of the story. Indeed, the CEO of the National Farmers Federation, a woman, the first woman ever to have held the position in Australia, Fiona Simpson, placed sustainable futures front and centre in her address to the National um, Press Club in August. Sadly, it didn't get the attention it deserved because a bunch of climate change deniers were busy ditching their more progressive leader of parliament at the time. So anyway, what I'll do this morning is give you a little bit of background um, and some very work-in-progress observations from some of the interviews I've done with women who farm over the past couple of years as part of this Invisible Farmer project. So the full name of the project is The Invisible Farmer, Securing Australian Farm Women's History. Funded for three years, we started in 2017 um, and I think technically we can keep going till about March 2020 
Um, through the Australian Research Council uh, link Linkage Project Scheme, and it is undertaking the largest ever study of Australian women on the land. It's a multidisciplinary team of scholars in partnership with experts from cultural institutions, government and community groups, working collectively to redress the ongoing invisibility of Australian farm women in cultural, historical and contemporary narratives. By promoting collections in existing repositories, unearthing materials held in private hands and proactively creating new collections through topic-based oral history projects like the one I'm doing, but also uh, you know, quite pro proactive social media campaigns, the project is making public the stories of women on farms, mapping the diverse and complex contributions of women to agricultural production across time and across Australia. So the Invisible Farmer project team is comprised of investigators and research associates uh, from the following in, uh, institutions in alphabetical order. ABC Rural, Monash University, Museums Victoria, the National Foundation for Australian Women, the National Library of Australia, the National Pioneer Women's Hall of Fame, the University of Melbourne, and the Victorian State Government Department of Economic Development, Jobs, Transport and Resources. So we've got a fairly large crew and managing that crew has its moments, but by and large, we've, we've, we've established an area where we're actually able to manage the two major arms of it, which are how can we use social media effectively to tell stories about women on the land? How do we get people to, um, I guess, provide their own stories in that context. And so that's, um, that, that part is largely being handled by uh, scholars at the Museum of Victoria. And then there's another, the other side of it is, I guess, the, more, the broader research project. Um, and within that context, we've got two PhD students who are doing the bulk of the writing for that. Um, so one of them is based at the University of Melbourne and she's undertaking a history and legacy, a project on the history and legacy of Australian women in food and fibre production. And that includes looking at these women who are part of the Australian rural women's movement. And there's also a contemporary analysis of women in agriculture. And both of those students are doing quite case study region focused um, projects. And you might find once they're um, further down the track, they'll have some really interesting um, information for this group. Um, and so both of the historical and sociological studies are involving the collection of oral histories and documents of women involved in the movement, along with other stuff which is out there that we know is out there. It's a whole different thing, but there are so many retired farm women who are now writing their memoirs, and it's kind of like, how do we get a hold of that? It's a really interesting sort of project that we would like to get get um, that material from. But I'm also doing, there are 45 whole of life um, interviews with women being conducted that will be permanently curated at the National Library of Australia. and. Museums Victoria are also doing an oral history program, but there's a much more focused on um, an outcome which is to produce social media content. Um, but they will still be curated and useful for anyone doing research in the future. And I guess attached to all of this as well is the other, the other side of an, another key area is actually using, 
Assessing the power and, I guess, the potential of digital narratives, of online um, interviews, of online transcripts, uh, social networks and so on and so forth, um, to actually sort of figure out how does storytelling change people's lives in its various different forms. Um, and so you could, you could argue that the one, the, we, well, I'll talk a bit about this later, but we're certainly balancing that need to, to get positive stories of activism out there so that people have something to model against some of the really awful stories we, we get told as well and that people are less inclined to want to tell us about. And so I'll talk a bit about some of that stuff. So, so as I said, I, my job is mainly to do, at, well, at the moment it has been mainly to do National Library interviews. We've got 45 of them um, for various reasons which mainly relate to the two PhD students. Um, I'll be doing about 25 of them. They'll do 10 each for their own research. Um, and my job is to conduct those interviews, summarise them using the, um, the National Library's super metadata creation tool, which, you know, is done in the vague hope that um, these women will allow online delivery of their interviews thus far. There have not been many women who I've interviewed, which is 22 thus far, who've permitted open access. And when I say not many, I mean only one. <laughs> so, so with a budget of 45, we can't hope to be quantitatively significant, but the qualitative case data that we're collecting will, is going to provide crucial research data for both the major research projects. Um, for, and my because the two PhD students are closely focused on Victoria, I've been working mainly outside of Victoria. Um, and my 22, about 25 narrators are retired. 25 are semi-retired, with the rest still actively involved in farm production. Most of them have worked on family farms or fishing enterprises, with the bulk of them marrying into those farms. Only four of them owned their farms as sole proprietors and only one of those inherited it. And even then she says it was because there were no sons. So old traditional habits of succession are dying hard and remain a key point of familial contact. Now, As well as providing crucial research data, the interviews are providing a critically important platform from which women can share their voice. To be told that your story is important now and into the future and that someone is prepared to spend several hours recording you tell it is a really powerful and confronting message. And some women have warmed to the task slowly, not really being prepared to take the microphone. But once they decide to take that leap of faith and share stories in the belief that maybe doing something might bring about change, they become unstoppable. I spent seven hours with a woman in WA before we got halfway through the themes. It was just extraordinary. I was exhausted. It was on a, um, it was on a farm outside Esperance and the plan had been that I would be going back home. There was no way I could get home. It was just... So anyway, there are a lot of them for whom this has just been super important. Um, and as anyone who's done any oral history interviewing knows, most of the ju uh, juicy stuff gets said when the recorder is switched off. 
But some of my narrators have been happy to stay on the record with the assurance that it won't go public access. Some are even okay that I mention their names in public presentations, but I would ask that nobody tweets anything that could identify them. So, yeah, I would just hope... I mean, I'm, I will mention names for a couple of them because it's kind of important, I think. I want you to buy their stuff. Um, so, anyway, um, here we go. And it's actually an interesting tension, that one between wanting to be heard but not being quite ready to take the flack that might come with it. And a good example of this came for me in February this year when I completed an interview with a sweet potato grower who farms at Bagara just outside Bundaberg in southeast Queensland. As I walked into the packing shed, she told me that she'd almost called to cancel, which would have been a real pain. Because <laughs> um, I'd had to change all sorts of tickets to get to Bundaberg. But anyway, it's, it's sort of... Yeah, it's southeast. If you know where the Gold Coast and the Sunshine Coast are, continue driving four or five hours above there. Um, yeah. Yeah, but even, yeah, no, so it's a beautiful, it's beautiful though, it is well worth taking the trip, it's gorgeous. Um, but anyway, you know, so I asked her, why did you nearly cancel? <laughs> uh, because I don't think I've got much in common with the glossy people on your website and I've got much more in common with the men in the area than I do with the women. Fair enough, what changed your mind? Not sure, but you're here now, so let's do this, so... <laughs> So we sat down in the donger and we chatted about her family's roots in the area and those of her husband and the reasons why they switched operations from cane to sweet potatoes and the reasons why she would think twice about encouraging her kids to continue farming. While not as negative as a cane and crop farmer I'd spoken with the day before, who was panicking about the impact of a recent listeria outbreak on their rock melon sales, and some of you who are Australian will remember that, um, she was nevertheless very pessimistic in her outlook. So she was really regretful about the time she missed with children due to farm schedules, um, which was interesting given that most mothers I'd spoken to said farming was a great way to mix work and family responsibilities. And I'm not sure at, at her age that might be a conversation that all working women have, that there's a, you know, that anxiety that I'm missing stuff. Um, but she resented being looked down upon by other women when she arrived at school to do a pickup covered in red dust and dirt. When I asked her why she farms, she said, well, you just do, don't you? It's all I know how to do. The red dirt just sticks to you. And I'm now starting to see that that narrative of being grown in the place, of dirt in the nostrils and under the fingernails is a very common trope for some women who continue to farm despite saying they wouldn't recommend it for their children. You've got dirt under your fingernails, grass seeds in your hair, you bloom where you grow. Even if, the, even if, they, didn't, even if they wanted to, they, they think they can't stay. They're too enmeshed in it. Many women I interview will say words to the effect of, this probably wasn't the story you wanted to hear. I hope it wasn't too depressing. And I find that response interesting, as if it's their responsibility to talk about their life experience in a way that is palatable and easy on the listener. Oral historian Alexander Freund refers to the storytelling phenomenon, a new industry of storytelling and listening that encourages the development of an onwards and upwards narrative framework, hardship followed by eventual triumph, 
The assumption is that people can listen to hard stories but only if the protagonists tilt upwards at the end and only if they are authors of their own success. You can't, can't be seen to be allowing for government intervention or welfare states to be part of your success. It's got to be you who's made your successful story. Um, and my sweet potato and rock melon interview participants, well, the farmers, sorry, I didn't interview any sweet potatoes sweet potatoes, um, <laughs> seemed to be feeling this and worried that somehow they weren't living up to the storyteller's code of conduct. I spent a bit of time off the record telling them that it was okay to tell stories that didn't please me. And I asked them whether they thought that maybe the telling of hard stories is required to bring about change. We need to celebrate our successes, sure, but hard stories that identify the structures and politics that produce bad policy and faulty systems need also to be told if we're going to get change. And they agreed. And I honestly think they felt this was the first time they'd been uh, given permission to whinge in public. So, although there are a lot of people who say farmers are always whinging in public. But it's, there's certainly a sense that they felt that you, you can't do it. So it's an interesting role we play um, as oral historians in this project, balancing those stories of extraordinary achievement, and there are many, against the narratives of hardships that, as one of them said, everyone knows but no one wants to hear. And already we have had feedback that confirms that those that tell the latter, the hard stories, are often taking big risks, especially if they're still living and working in the communities that sustain them. So even though most of my narrators have never been interviewed before, there are some remarkably similar safe stories they all seem to agree upon. It's like there's some sort of, you know, telepathic connection to an agreed version of events. And if I was to do a word cloud um, on the transcripts of older women who I've interviewed to gauge those words or terms that they most use, three would regularly appear. Expected, duty, resilience. Now, I'm not sure whether that would differ much for women of a similar cohort in other industries or in other, in other um, areas in non-farming contexts. Maybe not, but nevertheless, there is a common narrative that you didn't question your limited options. You did what was expected. You knew your place and you stayed in it, said one 70-year-old retired farmer. And she continues, you did your duty to your father and mother and then when you were old enough to your husband and most likely his mother, she was frequently your harshest critic. However, as women received better education, expectation and duty started sh starts to shift out of the frame and is replaced by a bit more assertive language. Even women who didn't get past high school, um, but who go back to do some study later on in life, um, they, they start to reassert some agency. Um, and we know that women from rural and regional Australia who came to adulthood in the 1970s and who were the beneficiaries of a free university education had expectations of their own. Uh, women who experienced university life took that experience and their education back to their communities, many with the aim of ensuring that women on, their, on the land did not live the same lives of duty that their mothers did. And some women who tell these stories are very careful to note the important impact of successful state intervention and a beneficial welfare state. Sometimes we can even broach the broad question of, I wonder 
why many farmers blame the ALP for everything bad that ever happens to them, or words to that effect. And I can report that there are some women who are seriously questioning their blind faith in the National Party now. Um, it took Barnaby Joyce, quite literally, to grope one of their friends for them to see that light. Western Australian women in particular are hoping that even some men in that state will think twice about who they vote to, for to represent them at the next federal election. And so they're actually saying that they may, they may actually not vote the same, which is quite extraordinary. Of the younger women, the word cloud would offer up some different options, although resilience would still be there. I'm less confident about generalising, but I think opportunity and exhaustion is something that they both they all associate with being uh, a farmer. Once again, education plays a role that needs exploring. Those women who have been brought up on farms, gone away to study, then come back, have a very different outlook to those who have just been there all the time. But exhaustion was a feature regardless of positive outlook or not, with a couple of observations speaking to that state of mind. One of them said, Sometimes I just feel like we're growing stuff to create jobs for backpackers who want to stay another year in Australia. Um, another one says, the truth is, if you have a good year these days, it's because one of your neighbours has had a bad year and it's hard to be community-minded in those circumstances. <clears throat> there are also some interesting observations about networks of women that do need to be teased out. There's absolutely no doubt that women's networks were and remain crucial to many of the women, past and present, who've worked as farmers, not only those who became activists and advocates, but there are concerns and sublet, uh, subplots that we should explore. Um, and one of them sort of relates to the woman who missed, says she missed time with her kids. Said one farmer, I love doing the planning, but I also like picking up my kids from school. I'd often arrive at the gate dirty and in my overalls. I was looked down upon by the other mums. And it's a class dimension that we don't think a lot about in Australia these days, but it really rankled with her and it still does. Because she was from a prominent family in the area, it was perceived that she was behaving like, in inverted commas, white trash. Um, and she was told this. Um, Another said, I have more in common with men than women in the area. I like to get dirty and do the physical work. This preference got me abused by a number of women in the area. I was laying aggie pipes and some of the guys from other farms were driving past and saw me doing it. They went home and told their wives. Their wives got pissed off with me for doing man's work because now they're expected to do it. So there are inevitably and... and I guess eventually is probably the better word because um, they always happen at the end of the time. Um, stories of mental illness, domestic violence, psychological abuse and misogyny, although it's generally older women and or widows who tell these stories. There's the neighbour who shot his whole family rather than sell the farm that was deeply mired in debt. One woman talks of her loving father and then 10 minutes later describes how he was never any good when he was out on the rum. My brothers had to hold him back, one on each side, to stop him from hitting our mother, she said. And mother would send the Litleys off to the barn on Friday night just in case. Another whispers about the husband that didn't speak to her for nine months when she got pregnant before she was supposed to. This in the pre-contraceptive pill age. 
One narrates how single men of all ages would trail after her like vultures when she was widowed, confident that they could woo her and win her land. She steadfastly remained unmarried, although banks made it very difficult for her to do so and would refuse to lend her money for improvements, which certainly they would have lent to men. These are all stories that they won't tell on the record, but nevertheless, they want to tell them. So we sit for a while figuring out how we might need, well, how we might be able to tell them so that others might hear them. And there's still a lot of careful curation that needs to happen in the interview space to make sure that they can't be identified. But for some women, the stories they need to curate most carefully for public con consumption are those that deal with criticism of land management practices of other members of the community. There's a lot of shifting in the seat and avoiding eye contact when I ask them two questions. First one is, what do you know about the indigenous story attached to this land? I think of the 22 I've interviewed, perhaps four can actually answer that with any confidence. And the second question is, how has the environment changed on your land since you've been here? And I'll talk a little bit about some responses from Queensland. So a retired farmer in her 80s who now lives in the Sunshine Coast hinterland, but who was a dairy farmer around Kenilworth in southeast Queensland, was an early leader in the Queensland land care movement. Based on some of her opinions on other matters we discussed in the interview, it's fair to say she's very politically and socially conservative. She's of German descent. Her ancestors were amongst a large number of Lutherans who um, settled around Toowoomba and the Darling Downs in Queensland in the 1880s and 90s. And she grew up on a small subsistence block, which actually was not subsistence, uh, subsistence at all. She couldn't sustain the family. So her father earned most of his money as a water borer and um, a water diviner. Um, so born in 1932, uh, the middle child in a family of 11 children who were all required to contribute to the family economy. She left school at age 14 despite the teacher begging her to go and get the scholarship, but it just wasn't an option. Uh, she helped her mother and father until she got married and when she got married, she did what women did in those days and was happy to do it, she said, have and raise the children, milk the cows and keep house. For 15 years, she did this on a farm near Chinchilla, um, where she lived with several other members of her husband's extended family, but eventually put her foot down and told her husband they had to find their own place. They did, and they farmed in Kenilworth happily for many years. Once the kids were all at school and she was in her late 40s, she went back to education herself. So she completed the secondary school, she, she did her scholarship and enrolled in history and cultural heritage courses online through James Cook Uni and the University of New England. Um, it was then that something clicked for her. Living near the Sunshine Coast in the 80s, she could see what development was doing to the environment in the region. Um, and what she was also able to see now was how this was simply a continuum of poor land management practice. Um, watching the degradation around her, with the benefit of seeing her own family history in a broader context, she began to understand how government settler schemes that essentially required farmers to over-farm small blocks in order to keep them had allowed European farming practice to wreak havoc in the area. Um, I think it was 
kind of important for her to actually be able to put this all down to the government as well. It's the government schemes that did it, you know, we were only doing what we knew, it was government who made us do it. But nonetheless, there was, there was an awakening. Um, she began to understand the environmental degradation that she was uh, witnessing as something man-made. And then she said, but if it's man-made, then we can unmake it. So she decided to become a farmer representative on the local land care committee, which was only just forming and was at the time dominated by what she described as hobby farmer greenies. No real farmer was going to listen to them, she said, but they would listen to me. So she took on the responsibility of mediator between land care factions and between the various uh, local government and state government authorities and the farmers. And she was effective. The local farmers would really rib her and tease her about her, quote, tree-hugging tree save the frog field days. But because she was one of them, not a jumped up person from Brisbane, and I think crucially because her husband was well liked and sort of supported her in this wacky venture, they listened. And I've got to say, there's something about her calming, soothing voice that I really think had something to do with it. And she actually thinks it does too. She's been told, you sound like my mother. <laughs> I shouldn't listen to you, but maybe I'll give you what you, what, give what you say a go. And so it's actually really quite interesting. Um, and I've got, there's a lot about her I, I did not like, but you're there listening to us thinking, oh, you're so lovely. No, no you're not. It's very strange. But anyway... She needed to be very careful in the telling of her, of her story in this project um, about her involvement in land care leadership that she not be too critical of people. She's still involved in the relationships are still quite precarious with many farmers still believing that no one has the right to tell them what to do on their land. So she repeats her mantra, it won't work unless you work with it which when you think about it is just another version of what Aboriginal people have actually been saying for the 60,000 years. Um, it frustrates her that there are still some farmers who talk in terms of mastering the environment, which is a really big change um, for those sorts of people. And then she says, but men think they can master anything. So it's really, it's, it's quite, she's, she's a complex person. Now, nowhere was the no-one-tells-me-what-to-do attitude better expressed than in the interview I did with Diane Sharker, who's a banana farmer just south of Innisfail in far north Queensland. When I interviewed Diane, she and her husband Frank had not long before met Prince Charles because they had been winners of the Queensland Farmers' Federation Reef Alliance Sustainability Award. Frank's grandfather and his father had farmed sugarcane in the area since the 1920s. Diane came from further south, uh, near Rockhampton, um, but both Frank and Diane had been regular visitors to and divers on the Great Barrier Reef since the 1970s. When Frank's dad died, leaving him the farm in 2000, Frank said, I can't farm this way anymore, I can't ignore the damage anymore and he shifted from cane to bananas. He and Diane developed a system of organic farming which they adopted at their, pro uh, their property, Pacific Coast Echo Bananas. And you'll recognise their produce if you go to any fruit shop. They're the ones with the red or green wax tips. Um, a small number of growers in the region have followed them and have adopted their IP. And they kind of function as a small growers' co-op like the growers' co-ops of old. Um, theoretically, 
they should be able to prosper as a small collective, but there are significant problems in the marketing of bananas which make it really hard to do them. I won't talk about that here. But when the, the shuckers first started out, they were told by locals, if everyone farmed like you, we'd never feed the world. They received constant criticism from local farmers who Diane says were brought up on the promise of superphosphate and pesticide. And indeed, the last half hour of our interview, we listened to a plane going over and back you know, and her neighbours still do it and she says, oh, they do it to shit me. <laughs> <laughs> She's a, wonderful. Um, anyway, but because this is how they've done it, they see no reason to change. Um, and indeed, this is, a, this is such a telling one. She says, as far as I'm concerned, they can nuke the reef, said one. No one's telling me how I can farm my land. And she says, it's a pissing contest. No one's telling me what to do. They pull out their tasteless, supersized Cavendish bananas and want to fight me with them. <laughs> and then people get really shitty with, them, with us for winning the Reef Alliance Award and the attention they got from Prince Charles. His praise of us was read as implied criticism of everyone else. It was quite funny. All these monarchists looking forward to his visit were pissed off with him by the time he left. So, <laughs> so she, But she feels real despair that people in urban environments don't understand what's happening to the reef because they did. They'd buy their bananas. <laughs> um, but, um, but more than that, they'd be putting pressure on all farmers to change their practices not just on the government to stop the Adani mine. Um, and that there's this whole sort of sense that it's easy to focus on that, but there's a whole heap of small stuff that's going on that... And then, but then she says, if you haven't seen the change to the reef, then why would you care? The Great Barrier Reef is just an abstraction for most Australians. Can women make a difference, we ask? I think so, she says. It's not called Mother Earth for nothing. I truly believe we care more holistically. But even Mother Earth is a bitch sometimes. So having said that, she has noted that there are many more young women taking up farming in the far north who think differently to those to their, well, to their own fathers, essentially. Um, and this gives her hope that not all is lost. Um, so there's people like Crystal Watkins who actually won the rural, Australian Rural Woman of the Year Award this year, whose uh, natural evolution banana flower products evolved from a, a total accident. Um, they basically ran over a whole heap of their lady-fingered bananas, didn't realise that they'd done it. They dried and then they, they found out that these, all these animals were just eating the, the flour and they did various tests on it and it turns out that their flour is one of the best things you can eat if you're a diabetic. So there you go. So anyway, what they do is it's, they use... They've now... They've used it as a way of um, getting rid of waste on their farm. And so she, it's, it's a really neat little thing. And it's quite interesting because Krista is also a highly marketable person herself. Um, and I think this is one of the things that's becoming quite different, that a lot of those women realise now that they must... They have to tell their own story of their own produce um, and that connecting, it's, it's more than just the glib sort of, you know, paddock to plate, that there's actually a story that they can tell and that that, um, how would you put it, that sort of job as being the storyteller or the writer or the advocate has actually been something that a lot of the women have taken on through time. Um, 
And so there's Krista and then there's Jessica Feely who runs Blue Sky Produce Mangoes and Avocados with her husband Matt. And they're attempting to introduce artificial intelligence to their production to improve output without placing as much stress on the soil and using as much water and so on and so forth. These people believe climate change is real, but they're tired of arguments about who created it. They just want policy to manage it. They're sort of getting... It, it, the politics are becoming exhausting for them. And those last two I mentioned have reason to be particularly on edge about it. They both farm on the Atherton Tablelands in far north Queensland, an area known for relatively mild tropical weather and a reasonable amount of rain. Yet in the last month, both farms have been bushfire affected. In Krista's case, severely. Natural evolution lost the bulk of their crop just a week ago in the fires. Many of you would have read about. Um, and she said, you know, this is not normal. Farmers in this district are used to losing stuff in cyclones, but not to fire. And the Feely Mango Farm was singed around the edges a week before the picking season started in November. Since then, they've had extreme heat, terrible dry storms and bugger all in the way of rain and a lot of their trees have just sort of lost branches and so on and so forth. Um, so Jessica is one of those young farmers who see all sorts of potential for her children in a life on the land but her confidence has been shaken this year. And I'll just leave you with a paragraph Jessica posted on her um, on social media last week that best describes how she's feeling. Dear Mother Nature, I'm sorry, but I feel it's time to end our relationship. Our unique love-hate arrangement is becoming more hate and less love. First it was the bushfire days before we started picking Kensington Prides, then two weeks of insane hot weather where it got to 40 degrees, just enough to sunburn all the R2s, which are a bow and mango, and now, hours before we start picking the R2s, it's an all-wind, no-rainstorm. A healthy relationship is built on trust and compromise, give and take. Recently, I can't trust what you will do tomorrow and it's all taken, no give. Sincerely, The Farmer. I'll leave it there. Thanks. You've opened up lots of um, possibilities for questions. That was great. So I just opened it up to anyone who'd, who'd like to ask a question and welcome to Simon. It's great to see you've made it. <laughs> we'll use the mic. Nikki, thank you so much for um, sharing the work. It sounds like a fascinating project, but what I'm struck by is um, I was doing research on uh, anti-herbicide activists and in uh, northern, the northwestern US, um, they had rural farm women that they were organizing they were like timber women, right? So they actually identified as timber women. So I really think it's interesting that the 70s seemed to be this moment when um, women in agriculture, right, like um, kind of like it's almost like a global uprising. Oh, absolutely. And I'm yeah. curious if, if, if some of your interviews show any hint of like this awareness of like um, the international nature, nature of, it, of it. Without question. Um, and in fact, the first international conference for women in agriculture was held in Melbourne in 1994. Um, and a bunch of farmers, mainly from uh, Gippsland here, so to the east of this state, were heavily involved in that. They, um, they actually connected with 
um, Canadian women in the first instance. I did a lot of work with uh, Canadian women. Um, but I think there was... Look, there might have been something like women from about 80 countries who came to this. And then, yeah, no, there was a, a lot of uh, connection internationally. Um, and I think that's where a lot of them actually... Mm, some of them got a lot of the, I guess, whatever theory they, they use. And in fact, I, don't, I mean, even those women who... Women who were, uh, had gone to university and had come back, they were establishing all sorts of links in, say, Papua New Guinea and India and so on. So it is most definitely part of, part of the movement, yeah. And in, uh, the question about the... Well, rather, the comment about the pesticides, uh, women in the cotton industry here were full-on activist, um, and they still are, yeah, yeah. So, no, thanks for that. <laughs> Thanks, Nikki. That was really wonderful. I was um, interested in, really interested in your comment about the narrative that women feel they are able to tell and that they have a sense of responsibility to make it palatable and to, even if they talk about hard things, it has to have a, an uplifting end to it. Um, because I think that's so true in, in my experience of doing oral history too. Um, and I guess I wondered, do you think that that is also um, a narrative when you've interviewed men, that they also feel that same sense of responsibility? I haven't interviewed any men for this, this project. project. Um, and in fact, I was thinking about this the other day. I don't actually do a lot of interviews with men. Um, most of the projects I've done, and I think it's by virtue of the fact that we're in... Um, I do them for the Australian Women's Register, have mm. been women's groups. Having said that, um, I those that I have done have normally been interviews with men of public achievement. And there's... Within that framework, there's far less presence of an imposter syndrome that most women think. And I sometimes wonder whether this tendency to have to tell a nice story is actually all part of that type of continuum. Um, mm -hmm. I'm, not, I'm, I'm not quite sure. I th and I think as well maybe, at least in this project, some of the nasty stories relate to topics that have not been spoken much about in public anyway. Um, and so those, yeah, those stories of domestic violence and financial hardship and so on and so forth, they... Um, they're, they're new stories for people to tell, I suspect. Um, and it's quite hard. Um, there was once one woman in particular who I spoke with who was in her 80s who told a story. I think, I think you might have been at a paper, I've told this before, where she told a story about pack rape. Um, and she's regarded it as her, her belief that I just have to keep telling this story because then maybe other people will tell their stories um, and I've got nothing to lose and I want those men named and all that sort of stuff. So, yeah... Yes, I don't know whether that answers your question. Yeah. Yeah, no, that's, that's, that's great. And, and I imagine that's what's feeding into the fact that of all these life history interviews you've done, you've got so few that are prepared to go online access. Yep. It, yep. Which is a real shame, but I can see why. No, that definitely. Would be difficult. Yeah, um, it, it, it is. And, and look, most of the time that's because they don't want their kids to know about it. 
Yeah, it's a bit, which is kind of strange because a, a couple of them, a couple of interviews I've done, the older, the oldest daughter has been hanging around the farmhouse, um, and that's been challenging. <laughs> um, uh, uh, so yeah, it, it, it's, it's kind of like um, there are some things that you think, oh, you can't tell everyone that. I don't know. It's it's mm. there, there's stuff that we need to work out. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Thank you so much. My question actually works on with what Karen was saying is, do you get a sense of conflict between the husbands and wives, like the women wanting to go in one direction and the men are less enthusiastic? Well, at, that's a really good question. Um, and I think most of, see, most of the women who I have interviewed have had in some way um, a connection with, say, the, the rural women's movement or, you know, that sort of, a more sort of feminist movement. And so... By and large, they're supported. They, they feel like they're supported to do this work. What some of the women have talked about is that it's other people in their communities that are really pissed off with them because they are held responsible, for instance, for other people's marriage breakdowns. Um, you know, it's that whole... That whole familiar narrative of you women getting too uppity, you're going to spoil the whole of society with your... Yeah, and so there's been a couple of them who've actually um, received, you know, not physical threats, but they've certainly been ostracised. And one of them in particular just said, oh, I can't... I wanted to retire here, but I just can't be stuffed. I mean, and this is stuff that they were doing 30 years ago. It's just, yeah, so... Yeah, there's, a, there's some concerns with that. Thank you. Um, and thank you for sharing your research and your stories. I wondered about the resources that you may have or lack with regards to supporting the women who, having shared their stories, are now... Um, experiencing some trauma or conflict? Uh, it's, it's a really, really important story. Um, and I have to tell you, there was one time when I was doing an interview. I, I was, yeah, I was doing some stuff and I actually felt really... Uh, it was the first time I'd felt quite so traumatised myself. Um, I keep... Sometimes you have a, a bit of a sense of who those people will be. Um... And I've kept in touch with those people. Um, some of the women... It, 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 it's, it's a problem for oral historians, no matter what the project is, that some of them, when, they've, when you are the first person they've told a story to, um, they have a connection with you that you need to be really careful of managing. In my situation with those two, it's actually the two sisters who were hovering... ..or the two daughters who were hovering around who have actually been a kind of useful resource in the end. So I've been able to actually check in and say, yeah, how is your mother? What's going on? And so on and so forth. Um, so there's been those two. The, the one who nearly cancelled, um, by the end of it, she actually did say to me, oh, I'm really glad I did this after all. It's kind of... I, and I think that there's just that... I don't know... I don't quite know how to describe it yet, but there's certainly this sense of... I'm allowed to be listened to by somebody and as long as I've got control over who listens to it in the future, 
that's okay. And with the National Library interviews, we can do that. We can actually close them off. Is that, yeah. Does that answer your question or...? I, w I was wondering more about whether um, from the initiation of your project that you would arrange for either counselling or have systems in place to assure the possible storytellers of um, how their stories would, would stay secret if they needed to. Oh, absolutely, and that's one of the wonderful things about having the National Library of Australia as a project partner in this type of project. Those sorts of systems are set up and it's all part of the, um, the ethics procedure that we have to go through so that we do provide uh, information about that kind of support. As I said, people... Uh, like, you, si you sign a, a consent form to be part of the research project. Once the interview's done, people get a chance to actually listen to the project and decide, no, I'm OK, good to go with that, and they can change their minds. But those... At the National Library, they're prepared to keep things closed for 70 years. Um, they just they prefer to have it on the record um, rather than not have it at all. Um, and so they make that commitment that it's your story, you get to chill. But, you know, that this is the... In the digital age, this is possibly the most important question for any oral historian. How do we protect our... How do we protect our... Um, our narrators, yeah. Um, I was really struck by that uh, evocation of a woman who had red dirt under her nails and she was covered in red dirt. And when you said that, I was reminded of um, uh, coal miners in Wales in the Rhondda Valley. I've spent some time there and when I've talked to coal miners, you know, they not only have described, you know, the, just how like physically enmeshed they were in that environment and the, the difficulty that they had literally scrubbing their bodies clean, um, but they, to a miner would say they'd go back tomorrow if the mines would just reopen because they so loved working with the other men um, in, in that community and they just, they really, really miss it. So my question is, when you talked about this woman who was covered in dirt, and I, I was thinking about the fact that you said that she was completely kind of en enmeshed in that world, but from the stories that you've been telling, I'm not getting a sense of community that there, or, or is there? Could you talk a little bit about whether these women who are so kind of embedded in the landscape to the point where they identify themselves even physically differently because of this, um, what, what that's about for some of them? That's a really good question. And I think part of that maybe is that I told you stories about Queensland. And Queensland is big and it, it's... There, the, the involvement, or rather the involvement with community is actually something they talk about. It's just really hard in that sort of, um, that sort of big space. Um, and... You ask them about things like online networking and so on, and, and they say, if I've got to go up the hill and hold my phone up here, you know, that, in order to actually, you know, order something from, you know, someone, there's no chance I can be involved in it. So I think it, what, I think there's certainly a sense in, 
in the places I went to in Queensland, that community is hard to establish. Um, and that, that is not the same in Victoria, um, where you can argue that, that the first parts of this women's act activism and um, the networks were created, will not argue, they were, they were established in Victoria. And it's a, it is a matter of geography. It's just a lot easier to do in Victoria. Um, I think as well, in the places that I talked to you about, government was less involved in helping to establish networks. It took them a lot longer. They, got, they did actually have a very good Queensland Rural Women's Network, which people got involved in, got defunded for a while, and it's now been re-energised. So it is something that they talk about, and I think it's something, yes, it's certainly, it's certainly something that we should explore further, just that, that different regional stuff. But I love, thank you for um, the reference to the coal miners because there is, there's something about that um, it's so elemental, yeah, that is, it, it, it's worth examining, yeah, thank you. Uh, yeah, just to follow up that question, I, I wondered if um, you got the sense that uh, the men are more networked, even in dispersed remote communities like Queensland, than the women are? The men? Yeah. Uh, probably, because they're probably on various industry boards or local boards or rotary or, you know, with p political parties and so on and so forth. So, yeah, I think they probably are. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, I've, and that's certainly something that a couple of them have, a couple of the women have spoken about, that... I actually don't want to be involved in the women's networks. I want to get on the networks that my husband's involved in because that's where I will actually get some power. So I think that, yeah, absolutely, yeah. It's still the tennis club that is probably the most important place for most women in that regard, yeah. Thanks, Nikki. I'm just, you talked a little bit about the division of labour on, on the farms and, and the way some women are chastised by other women for doing men's work. I'm wondering how, um, how exclusive those divisions can be and, and where there's signs of other signs of disruption and where there is places still that women are effectively not allowed to go or work that they're not allowed to do. Yeah, I, I think there's a, there's a whole narrative about how farming is becoming less about physical labour um, and more about, you know, you can use technology, science, it's about marketing, it's, you know, doing all this sort of stuff. Um, but women who call themselves farmers, and there are still some who don't actually take that word on, there's a, there's a whole load of politics attached, attached to that. Women who call themselves farmers will always refer to how much they love driving the header. So there's that sort of note, that, that is a symbol of something that is really important to them. But even within the, um, in, in, a, in I guess a new sort of framework of farm work, uh, there is a division of labour. The women will be doing the business side, the marketing start side, the communications side. Most of the time, if there's science, you know, the ag, ag you know, the... Oh, I've just lost the word entirely, but whatever. You know, putting... Like, in, at the banana farm, they spend an awful lot of time putting sensors into the ground and re reading what's going on there because unless you know at that level, they can't 
um, keep their um, they can't keep their status as a particular type of organic farmer. So that, that's still Frank's job. Reading the science, analysing that data is still very much the man's job. Even though so many of these women actually do have ag science degrees or whatever, it's a really interesting thing. So one of them who I actually talked about it with said, and she's a younger woman with two small kids, she just said it just makes better sense for him to do it at the moment. I've got two kids... I'm not going to get out and play with chemicals, all that sort of stuff. But then she did actually say, although I probably wasn't doing it that much anyway beforehand. Yeah. So I think there is there it. It's different, but there is certainly a greater sense amongst young women who I spoke with that we are in this as a partnership. Um, and if there is an evil person, it's the mother-in-law. <laughs> always the mother-in-law. It's always the mother-in-law. <laughs> <laughs> My question kind of follows on that quite neatly. You started out talking about property ownership, inheritance patterns, and I guess I want to know how much control do these women really have? Are they the ones who make the decisions? I mean, it's all very well to think a certain way and even act a certain way, but if push comes to shove, who gets to sell the farm, keep the farm? Who gets to spend the money on one kind of farming or another? Um, and I realize they're all different, but... I, I, it's such a good question, and it is the... I, I can't answer it, to be honest. Um, and I suspect... But I suspect that those are the types of uh, answers that um, the one of the PhD students is looking for. My gut feeling is it's still there's still not a lot of control um, and indeed succession is one of the biggest issues that anyone involved in farming business is talking about today. Um, a lot of those women's networks are actually sort of well, they're actually um, digging into th those sorts of problems in ways that no other groups or no other sort of bodies are actually doing it. And I think I was speaking with one... So Alana, Alana Johnson, who works for the Victorian... Well, who's chair of the Victorian Women's Trust, is a farmer in Benalla herself. And she was talking about basically this is the part of leadership that she needs to get into because... If we keep going the way we do with family farming, then all our farms are kaput. You know, we're actually not, we can't, they can't be sustainable. But we don't want to go the direction that a lot of New Zealand farming has gone, which has become much more industrial. Um, so, so the answer to your question is, it's a problem. They're working on it. But women are actually the ones who are possibly driving the, the questioning and the... The, the agenda for we can't keep doing it this way. And I think there is there is a real sense that the sustainability issues that we confront are related to problems with the family farm. Don't know whether that answers your question. Yeah, yeah. Hi, thank you for this. Um, I just want to follow up on that question. You're telling these stories, and all of these women, except for like the widow, are married and they have a family. Is that correct? Yeah. So uh, one of the things I was thinking about in the U.S., for example, a lot of the new sort of like new farmers, right, doing local organic 
um, small-scale farming. A lot of them are like non-hetero couple people or more single women. Is Are you seeing any kind of trends like that or is it still based on this sort of, um, not nuclear family, I guess, nuclear family? Yeah, no, no, it's a good question. And um, I think what you've, there have been, so for instance, in that Bundaberg area, there's a, there's a queer couple that actually, they're called Shackleroth Farms. They've got a very, they, they have a, a high profile on, um, on uh, in, not Instagram, on Facebook. Um, and they, but I, I'm not sure that they were people who actually grew up on farms. I think they actually decided they wanted to farm. They were both police women, I think, at some stage. So, so no, there, there's certainly a sense that um, there, there are fewer single women um, doing it on their own. Um, but having said that, in WA, in, sorry, in Western Australia, there is a lot of, uh, there are, there's a lot of large corporate farming there based on how farming was developed over there. And there are a number of, of single women who are actually farming, but they don't own the farms. And I think that's one of the models that Alana is looking to, that there are ways that everyone can actually have a, a role in farming um, that um, and that sometimes and, and somehow it's the family farm that's holding us back in some ways so I look because I haven't done a lot of work in this state um, I can't talk in any detail but once again that more sort of uh, small boutique horticultural type of, of um, farm is present here and in and maybe in parts of around northern New South Wales and so on and so forth. So, yeah, it's happening, yeah. Can I take the uh, microphone <laughs> prerogative? Um, thanks, Nikki. I, I was wondering um, about the, I suppose, the ethnic diversity of the people that you're speaking to and, and, and how that looks and, and yeah, what you're great. able to contact. Yeah, <laughs> I wonder that. Not great, not great, yeah. Um, no, North Queensland Italian. Um, Italian market gardeners in South Australia, um, but not great, not great. And that'll be, oh, we, we have tried to get into, um, uh, I guess, interviewing some people from Vietnamese market garden communities, and that's actually been really hard. Uh, there's, uh, there's, I imagine there are concerns about work, um, work arrangements that, they're not happy with. But I, I don't know how much of that, uh, the lack of diversity is also a reflection of what the reality of land ownership is as well in, in areas. Um, so, yeah, it's imperfect on that score, yeah. Thank you so much for the wonderful talk. Um, so you b briefly uh, touched upon how you asked women how they would go about farming and agriculture in a more sustainable way uh, for the environment. So um, did they have any uh, mechanisms or did they talk about how they would go about differently to be more sustainable? How, how they would go about? Differently in uh, their farming oh. techniques or whatever. <laughs> That's a really good question. Um, no. <laughs> no. I mean, the only one who really did talk about how they were doing... Th oh, no, that's not true. Um, the, 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 there are a couple of 
in WA, uh, Western Australia, that I have just done that I haven't actually listened back to yet. But my my recollection of them is that she that they have been talking about the things that they do differently once they've realised seen seen the light, and I think the like Diane the banana farm, they they want to tell everyone what they're doing differently. Um, because they want other people to do it differently. The people on the, the Atherton Tablelands, they certainly are, are trying to get people to listen to what they're saying. Um, um, and almost all of them will say the biggest problem they have in telling their own story is that they're all hooked into marketing boards that won't let them... that won't let them tell the story, that they're all... Bananas in particular, they, they have to pay an incredible amount of money to the banana marketing board, which actually means that if anyone actually is trying to do anything differently, they've got to spend more money telling their story differently. And they try to opt out of this big stuff um, and they can't. So, um, so yeah, no, when, as I think about it, most of them, it's almost as though... It's a competitive market. I need to tell you how we're doing things differently. So maybe that story will get out, yeah. They don't do it in any sort of, you know, high-tech sort of way because a lot of it is IP that they actually need to protect. And so, once again, the bananas, they found all sorts of people in the area when they first started doing what they were doing would try and pass themselves off as Pacific Coast Echo Bananas which is why they developed the wax tips on the bottom of them. Yeah, yeah. So. <laughs> Can I just follow up that? Because it relates back to your um, comment in opening, Nikki, about... Or two comments. One was the ways in which storytelling can change people's lives... And then the other comment you made about the tension between wanting it on the record but or agreeing to put it on the record mm. but not wanting to go public, so, so not wanting it to be accessible. Um, and, and so the tension there, as you've just been discussing around... I mean, telling you and not wanting to go it on the record isn't going to change anything. I know. I, I mean, in the public sense. I know. And so that's why sometimes I, I do spend a lot of time asking them, is there a way we can tell this story that will keep you safe? And sometimes we can. Um, and look, so, so Sorry, can I just sorry. interrupt you there? Do you yeah. mean by that the way you as a researcher can tell that story without them name, being yeah. named so, yeah. so that it can become more public but still their identity in the National Library, et cetera, is protected. Yeah, okay. yeah. And so I think what... With some people, what happens is that we have we have an ongoing um, letter-slash-email writing conversation um, in order to support the research. Um, so the oral history is just one thing. And very often, if you for the women that we've been interviewing, it's the first thing. And so they actually start thinking about, oh... How can we actually write this down? So we actually, I mean, and this is something that the Women's Register that we've been playing around with a lot. It's not just farmers, but it's like, how do you actually um, co-curate someone's story? Um, in and it doesn't need to be a verbatim transcript. How do we make it um, representative of a way people feel or the types of things that they're feeling? So, 
yeah, it's a, it's it's a whole sort of new mucking around with methodologies thing. But I think it actually is. It we have to go there some way. Um, and indeed, I was up at um, a uh, symposium, the Australian Dictionary of, Dictionary of Biography, and talking about the problems of telling stories of Indigenous people. And there is just there's a there's a lot of people who won't like it, but there is a lot of people who are now thinking, yeah, let's tell. We can tell representative stories. They can still be historically accurate. Um, we don't need to be mm, footnoting in the way that we have traditionally done. Because if we don't, then we won't get those stories. And I think that's the type of stuff that we're working with. Yeah. On that point, um, you said that four of your interviewees had an understanding of indigenous farming practices on their land. I wonder if you could tell us a little bit about how they know how they know about those practices, how each how those four um, how that kind of knowledge has come about for those farmers. Okay. So for some of them when they say, you know, we're a fifth generation farmer, they will we will say, so you've got to have stories about how they got that land. And um, and some of them say, oh, no, don't really know an awful lot about it, but we know there were middens over there or what have you. So, in other words, the stuff's still on their property. It exists. They know it's there. Um, there's been a couple of them who've said, yeah, when we've been ploughing, we've found stuff and we've actually had to um, confront our own past. Um, so, so, those... There's another one. Oh, there's another. There's a couple of them who. Oh, so the the funny the funny woman who did the the land care stuff in Queensland, she she actually went. She had no sense of what was happening on the property before she did that, um, and she, so she then started actually going back and looking at tracks and things like that and thinking, oh, okay, so that must have been where they were on the river. Um, I don't think I've read any of them in any sort of local histories of the areas that they farm. Oh, and they're, they're, one woman I interviewed who was in um, Alice Springs, it's like, you can't not know. <laughs> Outside Alice Springs, you can't not know. But it is still quite... So it's still quite alarming how few confront and there are some who have said, oh, we've made discoveries... And we don't want anyone to know about them because that might change our relationship with the land, which, you know, legally it can't, but there's still, there's still a great fear amongst all of them that Indigenous people, if they find out that there's a bit of their heritage on their land, that they'll come and take it all from us. Yeah. The kind of other side of, of that. Um, how aware are they of their own family's genealogy and where the um, you know, settlers came from, uh, from Britain or from other parts of the empire? They're, I don't think I've spoken to anyone who hasn't got an interest in their own genealogy. Um, and as I was saying, the, a number of the retired women have got heavily into it and there are num many of them are writing memoirs or what have you and... 
oh, I was up at a Queensland Rural Women's Network meeting and, you know, they were all selling their self-published sort of stuff. So there's a real sense that there's, there's a project there to be done. Um, I'm not sure how different that is from many women who retire and get, I mean, get stuck into genealogy. It's... It's a seriously interesting form of history. Um, and sometimes I think it's just that they've got the time to do it now. Yeah. But, yeah, they're, they're, everyone, everyone is able to describe in some way how they got there. Yeah, maybe two or three, at least three generations back. Yeah. Nikki, it is time to let you off the hook, actually. <laughs> Just when you're pouring yourself a glass of water. Um, it's been fabulous, fabulous listening to you talk and then also to um, your really generous answer to all the questions that we've um, shot your way. And you've kicked us all off in a really fantastic way for the beginning of our workshop. Thank you very much. Oh, thank you. It's a pleasure. I thoroughly enjoyed it. Thank you. Good luck for the rest of the project. I'm really looking forward to talking to you more about this. So many resonances with other work. You are listening to an M Pavilion podcast, conversations about design and the world we live in. Visit our archive at library.mpavilion.org and subscribe wherever you find your podcasts.